Wasn't that great worship? I love when worship focuses our attention on God Almighty, not on us, not on our greatness, but on his greatness. I love that. Well, Happy New Year. I hope you're excited. This year is going to be much better than the last two. By faith, I believe it. Okay? Not only that, I hope you're excited. You're about to hear the best sermon of 2022. You're about to hear it. Now, it's also the worst sermon of 2022 because it's the only sermon. Someone came up after the service to bless me with that. I just wanted to bless you with that from the first service. So, um, I don't know about you, but New Year's times is a time for us to, uh, to think about the past year, how it went, what went good, what went bad, and then also to think about the next year. And, and a lot of people make New Year's resolutions. Have you ever made one? I have. Have you done well with it? I have it always, but that ability to come before the Lord and say, hey, what should this next year look like? And I have in front of me 10 of the most um, used, the, the most common New Year's resolutions for 2022. Do anyone, does anyone want to make a guess at what's at the top of the list? Lose weight, I heard that. That's number two. Before that is... Exercise more, which I think those two were supposed to go together at the same time. Uh, get organized. Anyone need to get organized? My wife and I have been doing that in the last couple of weeks, and it feels good. Every load that we've taken to goodwill feels good. Uh, learn a new skill or hobby. Live life to the fullest. Here's a tough one. Save more money slash spend less money. Somehow, I often get those reversed in my own life. Do you? Quit smoking. Thankfully, that's not one. Spend more time with family and friends. Travel more. Read more. According to one survey of the individuals that make New Year's resolutions, 46% of those people, 46% of those people act on them and see a level of success in their resolutions. 46%. Now, that's if they do two things. If they, number one, write them down. Write them down and place them someplace where they're going to see it regularly. And then number two, if they share that with a friend. They share that and they, they really, accountability, they're saying, this is something I want to do. Would you pray for me about this? Would you help me in this? And even as we come into this new year, I would like to suggest a resolution for all of us. Now, you take it with a grain of salt, but I'd like to suggest a resolution. And by the way, if half of us or 46% of us make progress in this one area, our personal lives will be blessed. We will become more godly. We will be a greater impact of those around us, and God will be glorified. Wouldn't that be wonderful for this coming year? And this is the resolution, that we would all strive for greater health in 2022. But let me describe what that health means. It's, it's emotionally healthy. We need to get emotionally healthier. And if you need help for that, we have resources here at Wayside that you can come and seek some counseling and say, how do I deal with these emotions? Uh, we need to become financially healthier. And again, here at Wayside, we have um, um, Dave Ramsey. What, come help me. It's called... Uh, Financial peace, thank you. We have Dave Ram. We, we want to see you healthier financially, but also relationally. 
the relationships you have, especially those of you who are married. And that's why Ronald shared that we're having this marriage conference at the end of the month. And we'd love for you to do that. But today I want to focus in on becoming healthier spiritually. I would like 2022 to be the year where I was spiritually the healthiest I've ever been and you right alongside of me. I'm that healthy. And I believe that there's the best way to get to that healthier place is by increasing our prayer lives, by praying more, by focusing on the Lord. Now, now when I get in a message like this, um, often it's easy to, to use guilt or shame um, when we talk about prayer because who prays too much in here? Okay, who reads the Bible too much? Could we all do better? Could we all do more? Okay, let me say that again. Could we all do more? Yeah, but the way to get there isn't to feel guilty about it and to feel shame about it. The way to get there is to be delighted in the Lord and be driven to him through our prayer life. Um, It's not meant to shame you. Um, When it comes to spiritual disciplines like reading your Bible, you can never, or prayer, you can never do them enough. And I I was reminded in, in prayer and reading the Bible are meant to be a normal regular part of the Christian life. Charles Spurgeon, the famous well-known prince of preachers in the second half of the 19th century, said this when he was asked, what is more important, praying or reading the Bible? And he answered with a question, I'll ask you, what is more important, breathing in or breathing out? What's more important, breathing in or breathing out? They're equally as important. We breathe in the word of God, but then we breathe out our prayer and our trust in the Lord. And that's what we're going to focus on today. Um, If you have your Bibles with you, you can turn with me to Psalm 4. But even as we turn to Psalm 4, which is the the, the privilege of prayer, it's an evening prayer of trust in the Lord. I want to just make note of something very important, the superscription. Um, The superscription says this. Now, that's not part of the original text. It's a later added piece that that tells you the setting. And it says this, for the music director on stringed instruments, a psalm of David. Now, that should surprise us as we get to a psalm, a psalm of David. 73 of the psalms are attributed to David. David is the most prolific writer of the psalms. And in the Masoretic text, 116 of the 150, 116 psalms have some kind of a superscription. And if you include the, the, the beginning hallelujah or praise of the Lord, that number rises to 126. Most of the psalms have a superscription that is telling you the setting or they're telling you to get ready because these are songs and they're going to be strung to, sung to a stringed instrument. Now, Jewish scholars tell us and, and many modern-day scholars, there's a relationship between Psalm 3 and Psalm 4, both in structure and in setting. And if that's true, the setting of Psalm 4 that we're going to be looking at is one of the most difficult periods in David's life. It is the, the rebellion in the, of Absalom, his son, recorded in 2 Samuel 15 to 17. It's a time when his own son seeks to kill him and drives him from the throne and out of Jerusalem 
and he has to go down into the Judean wilderness where he had spent time as a boy shepherding. And he had to seek out, Lord, what do you want me to do? David, by the way, is introduced in in 1 Samuel 16 with that wonderful story about Jesse being told by the prophet Samuel, hey, bring your boys to the special feast we're going to have. So he gets there, he sees the oldest son, Eliab, and he says, oh, this guy looks great. He's the guy. But that's not the case. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For God does not see as men see, since men looks at the outward appearance. But the Lord, Lord, he looks at the heart. And it's interesting that first, after this, they finally come and they bring David and Samuel says, that's the guy. He's the guy. But it notes that David is ruddy or red-haired. He notes his eyes. And, and, And... there's something odd about that. It's almost like the psalmist is saying, or um, this Samuel is saying, um, he looks different. He doesn't look like all the rest of the boys. Um, I grew up in a family of five. I am the youngest. All my siblings will tell you that that means I'm the baby, right? And I prefer youngest. I don't know about you, but are there any other youngest children in here? Okay. Aren't we wonderful in general, in general, we, we learn from the mistakes of our older siblings. But I had two older brothers that were 13 and 11 years older than me. And these two brothers at different times would come and something would be said and they'd say, you know, well, you don't look like the rest of us brothers. You look different. And I would like shrug and say, well, I'm, I'm one of you. And then they'd say, you know, well, as a matter of fact, you look more like the postman than our dad. (laughs) And though that's a funny comment meant to uh, be a zinger in our family, that was done in a private, quiet setting. What's said about David here is before the whole town. And in chapter 17 of, of 1 Samuel, there the brothers are, David takes down provisions for them to the battlefield. And the brothers there say, um, they, that they're unpleased with him. Now, the brother, Elab, his oldest brother, said, David, when he spoke to the men, Elab's anger burned against David. And he said, why is it that you have come down? And the answer is, I'm doing what dad told me. And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? David, you just had one job to do. Take care of a few sheep in the wilderness, which, by the way, was a big job. I myself, his older brother says, in a public setting, I myself know your insolence and the wickedness of your heart, for you've come down in order to see the battle. And by the way, they knew that David was anointed by the prophet Samuel. They knew that it was because God was looking at his heart. And yet they said, no, you have a bad heart. There's wickedness in your heart. By the way, we could delve into it more dearly, but David came from a dysfunctional family. I don't know if any of you can relate to that. David came from a dysfunctional family. Both his dad kind of pushed him off to the side, maybe because he looked different. His brothers definitely did that. He came from a dysfunctional family. But even more tragic, David produced a dysfunctional family. 
Have you read the story of David? By the way, they're unique in all the ancient Near East. No one would record all the missteps and misdeeds of the great king. When you read any other, um, any other nation, and when you read about the Assyrians and their kings, or the Babylonians and their kings, they're, they're godlike. But the scripture records David's adultery with Bathsheba and then the murder of Uriah the Hittite, one of his mighty men, a great and godly man. And with that also, the death of this child begun in a state of adultery. The scripture records Amnon, one of his sons, a crown prince, raping his half-sister Tamar and then despising her. And because of that, eventually her brother, Absalom, kills him. Sound like dysfunction in the family to you? And then finally, David's son Absalom scheming to take away the kingdom and running David out of Jerusalem and into the wilderness. By the way, if any of you come from a messy family with some dysfunction, and maybe we all do to some level, take heart. That's not where David stayed. David changed that. And we we don't have to live with that guilt and the shame of our dysfunction from our family. David did not declare, and David did not seek and not pray and and live a life of prayerlessness because of all his family dysfunction, dysfunction, because of all of his sin. But instead, David went to the Lord. And I know, uh, just through counseling, through spending time, I know that some of you, like me, have come from families of heartbreaking dysfunction. My high school years were terrific in sin. I excelled at sin in my high school. And I look back on that and I, oh, Lord, why did I do that? I wish I would have, lots of wish I would have, wish I could have, wish I didn't. But that has not kept me from the Lord and it hasn't kept me from a life of prayer and it didn't keep David either. And before going on in the message, can I just pray for any of us that come from dysfunctional families? Would you bow with me and just pray? Father God, I I thank you um, that you can use people that come out of families less than the best. And Lord, we're grieved when we see the, the greatness of David or sad with a sin he committed. And how much more that pained your heart. But Lord, we want to pray with David what he said in Psalm 19, verse 13. Lord, would you keep your servant from willful sins that we may not rule over me? And then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. Lord, would you do that in our lives? Allow us to to grow with you. Amen. You know, David was in a very stressful time, and I don't know what happens with you during stressful times. Uh, Does that drive you to the Lord, or does that distract you and take you away? But one of the most stressful times um, in our life, in Brenda and my marriage and our family life, was in 1995. It should have been the spring of 1995. should have been a great spring, because I was going to graduate from Dallas Theological Seminary. But before that, a number of years, our son had started to get ill, our oldest son, Mark, and eventually he was diagnosed with a a brain tumor. 
And we had to go and do some pre-testing and to get ready and then have the surgery, all of which was, was done up at the National Institute of Health in Bethesda, Maryland. And so we're up there trying to take care of our son when I should be down getting ready to graduate. And the pressure was great. I mean, almost overwhelming. And it's in this setting I received a note. By the way, I, I keep that note to this day. I keep that note to this day because of what it meant to me. It's from Chuck Swindoll. I'd worked with Chuck and I'd done some different things. Brenda had too. But he wrote this in the midst of some of our darkest hours. My dear, my dear friends, Brenda and Walt, the best part of our luncheon yesterday was Walt's tears. You might get some more of them. Sincerely, I was deeply touched because I genuinely care not only about you and your mark, but about the two of you, especially about the two of you. Be assured of Cynthia and my concern and our prayers for you. We want you to know that you and your family will be utmost in our minds and our hearts Tenderly, Chuck. Is there someone you should write a note like this to? Is there someone that you should be regularly praying for that's going through deep weeds? I would encourage you to ask the Lord, Lord, is there someone I should write? And pray for them, but then let them know you're praying for them. That note comes in such a dark time, meant so much. And continues to just encourage me today. Our son's much better. Our son, we're thankful for that. But there were some dark days. In times of family stress, what do you do? Well, as we turn to our text, this song of trust begins with David seeking God's help. And he says this, Answer me when I call, God of my righteousness. You have relieved me in my distress. Be gracious to me. And hear my prayer. David here is calling on God, answer this prayer, Lord. And he's appealing to the Lord as the righteous one that grants him to be righteous too. God's righteousness, when we're in a relationship with him, it flows into us. And God, you are going to d deliver me from distress. You have in the past, I'm trusting you right now for that. And he, in the midst of this, it's a reminder, God does what is right for his children. Even when we can't see it or understand it or explain it. I love in this, you relieve me in my distress. That, that term, my distress, is used to describe of being backed into a tight corner and having no way out and being pressured. Have any of you ever been backed into a tight corner? I have. But relieving that distress is what God can do. Really, that means, and walk into openness. To not have cowering in a corner, but to walk in the light of God and his word. Um, even as we talk about this, this distress, my temporary distress sometimes fades, or really always fades, when I seek the Lord. Uh, very recently, uh, we had a very 
expensive car repair. And we were at the repair shop, and I was talking with the, the technician, and I was, as he said, this is going to be any thousands. No, thousand is okay. Thousands at Christmas time, when I probably already spent too much on gifts. and th- Thousands does not sound good. And so I complained to this service technician. His name was Thomas. I said, Thomas, I don't need this at Christmas time. I don't need this at Christmas time. And he, I said, you know, I don't know what I'm going to do, but, but we'll see what I can do as far as getting the car repaired. And Thomas shot back to me and he said, you know, I know what you mean about Christmas time. He said, um, we have one son, Lowell, and he's estranged for us and we haven't seen him in two years. And at Christmas time, when we used to enjoy that time together as a family, we haven't seen him. And we're not expecting to see him this year. And at that moment, my shift changed because of the Lord to this man, Thomas, and his family's need. And I just asked him, as I do regularly, I just asked him, can I pray for you right now? And he said, yeah. And I did pray for him. I did in the midst of that, take his needs before the Lord. And with that, as we talked, I just prayed with him. And afterwards, he said, you know, the Lord knew that I needed you here today. I'm all focused on a car. But when I go to prayer and when I lift someone else up, the Lord knows that something great is going to happen out of that. That whole idea of distress changes. I no longer feel hemmed in. Because now I'm praying to the God of the universe. God knows what Thomas needed that day. And God knows what you need. Matthew Henry said this, All the notice of God is pleased to take of our prayers. And all that returns he is pleased to make of them must be ascribed not to my merit, but purely to his mercy. That God hears our prayers, that God answers them, that he delights in them. It it isn't to our merit. It's to his mercy. And see, that's different than guilt driving us to prayer. That's love drawing us to prayer. And so a question, do you need prayer or are you pretty self-sufficient? Do you need prayer? You know, at Wayside Chapel, if you go to waysidechapel.org backslash prayer, you'll see three big bullet points. The, the first says, if you have a prayer request and want our team to know it and pray, call and it gives the number. And then leave us a message. And fill, we'll fill this online form below. Secondly, if you would like to be part of our prayer team and get that prayer list, write to Lori M. at waysidechapel.org and she'll put you on that list. And then lastly, it says, here's a form. Share with us what you want us to pray about. And you can even check a box. I, I want this to be anonymous. We, we will respect that. But we will put that prayer request on the list and it will be shared by hundreds of people at Wayside as they pray. We all need prayer. But we all don't often seek the prayer that we need. As we continue on in the text, verses two to five, David warns his enemies, who who are God's enemies, and calls on them to repent and trust 
in the Lord. It says this, you sons of men, how long will my honor be treated as an insult? How long will you love what is worthless and strive for a lie? Selah, rest. Think about this. How long will you live this way? But no, the Lord has set apart the godly person for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Tremble and do not sin. Meditate in your heart upon your bed and be still. Selah, rest. Think about these things. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and trust in the Lord. David here is is warning his enemies. You need to get right with God. And as he says that, we're not sure who all these enemies are. Some of them probably were the aristocrats that used to follow after David, but now have gone with the young, strong, (laughs) the current guy, Absalom. And they've driven David out, and he says, you guys better be careful, because God's not done with this. It uses the term that, that David was godly, Hasid. Hasidic Jews are very known for looking godly and looking different. Well, David wasn't just looking different. He was, when he was walking with the Lord, he was different. He was godly. And so are you and so am I. We can live godly lives. But the godliness that we want to live out is a result of God's calling us. Because the Lord had set David apart and the Lord has set you apart. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, And then in verse 4, David urges his enemies, on the basis of my calling, David's calling by God, don't don't give way to sin and your anger against the king. They need to tremble and fear and stop sinning. Think about it. Selah. Pause. And they would be wise to remember this. Righteous sacrifices are those offered with a proper spirit of submission to the Lord. And that's what David is calling on them. Get right with the Lord. And then you can offer prayers to the Lord. In the midst of this, David concludes this wonderful psalm with three verses. Many are saying, who will show us anything good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, Lord. Shine upon us. And you have put joy in my heart more than when the grain and the new wine are abundant. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep for you alone, Lord, have me dwell and safely. These many people who are saying, God's not going to show us anything good. Um, again, possibly refer to people that used to be friends of David, people that used to follow him, people that used to even do battle for him. But this idea of many people, it expresses, they express their discontent. God, will you show us anything good? And that's a good place because if you repent and turn to the Lord, he can show you that good. The Jewish uh, Publication Society version of verse 6 reads this, Oh, for good days. Oh, for good days. And it's been said by Warren Wiersbe that the good old days, do you remember the good old days? The good old days are a combination of bad memory and a good imagination. Those are the good old days, a bad memory and a good imagination. And when you think about 
World War I and World War II and the Great Depression and, and various battles and warfare since then, when you think about all the good old days were, it's that bad memory and a good imagination. So there's a desire of these complainers, and it's a legitimate desire. They're seeking good, but they're seeking it in the wrong places. David, knowing he was God's chosen servant, and those who sought to overthrow him were acting contrary to the will of God. This brought great joy to David's heart. And he even talks about the joy in in that verse where he talks about, you have put joy in my heart, verse 7, more than the grain and the new wine are abundant. Um, I grew up on a dairy farm in northern Pennsylvania, and one of the the happy times of, of our year was when we finished the last hay and put the hay up in the mow. And the bales are all up there. Okay, we got the hay in. But there was one last major step. We had to get the corn silage in the silos. And sometimes the rain would come and it would be very difficult to get that. But when you got the hay all in the barn, and when you got the corn all in the silos, there was a sense of great contentment. There was a sense of joy from the hard work that you had done. And that's okay. But Charles Spurgeon reminds us, Christ in the heart is better than corn in the barn or wine in the vat. It's better than that. When we have Christ in our heart, when we're in a right relationship with him, it's better than that. And it results in this, verse 8, peace. In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, Lord, have me to dwell in safety. Oh, that you and I might experience that peace as we dwell with the Lord. And we experience that through prayer. I don't know about your habit or how your sleep is, but typically when I sleep, I like when I, within 10 to 20 seconds of laying down, I'm asleep. Um, I have two speeds, basically. One is frantic and the other is asleep. You know? And so when I stop, even sometimes when I sit down, I'll, I'll shortly be asleep. But with that is the recognition that, that I have peace with God. I can be peaceful in my sleep. And then when I do wake up, I've trained myself, I've worked on praying. I just start praying. And eventually the Lord takes me back to sleep in the midst of the prayers, and that's okay. As we start this new year in conclusion, as we start this new year, I'm going to make three points that come out of this passage, but then incorporate more into it. I want to pray And we need to recognize that we are praying to God, the creator of all things. He is the Lord God Almighty. And he is holy, holy, holy. That's where we go when we pray. The creator of all things. And we show an attitude of gratefulness and praise that we have an awesome privilege to pray to God. And it's only through Christ that we have this great privilege. When we pray, we access the privilege that Jesus Christ gives to us. Secondly, when we pray, we see ourselves as God sees us. In our faith relationship with Christ, God doesn't see us as despicable, rotten sinners. He sees us clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And he allows us to have a a different standing. And our hearts are filled with thankfulness by what Christ has done for us. He has saved us. He's filled us with his Holy Spirit. 
And that is David's desire for all of us. I love when David wrote in Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. And what that means is when we delight ourselves in the Lord, he replaces our fleshly old desires with godly desires. It's not that he just gives you whatever your heart desires. It's that he changes what your heart desires. And that occurs over time of just walking with him. And so I'm asking you, would you make a resolution for 2022? And would that resolution be that you want to draw closer to the Lord in prayer? That you will intend to write that down someplace and share it with a friend, maybe share it with your life group or your adult Bible fellowship or wherever you you have community. Share, I want to make this year more prayerfully focused. I I want to increase and, and see my prayer life grow. And when we do, we will find that most of our prayers will be different. I won't just be praying about people and things. and I'll be praising the Lord. I'll be taking these things before his throne of grace. And the things of this world will decrease in their priority as we increase in our prayer. Would you bow with me? Father God, we thank you for your word, which is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And Lord, we confess that, that we don't always avail ourselves to the great privilege of prayer through our great high priest, Jesus Christ, who even right now ever lives to make intercession for us, his followers. God, I pray in your kindness and through the prompting of your Holy Spirit, Lord, would you draw us into a relationship of greater prayerfulness this year. And your body will be built up and we will be encouraged and you will be glorified. I thank you for all of this. In Christ's name, amen. As we continue on, even just in our praise of the Lord, um, part of it, one of the things that we do as a church body, if you're here and you're a believer, we ask you to participate in the Lord's table. It's not Wayside's table. It's the Lord's table. So if you have these elements or you've gotten them ready where you're online, would you open the first little seal and pull out the little wafer? And would you listen to the word of God? For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he given thanks, he, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And afterwards, in the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And the apostle Paul reminds the people, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death, his sacrifice, 
his shedding of the blood on Calvary's cross that covers our sin. You proclaim that right up until the moment when he comes. Right up into the moment when he comes. And I long to see that moment. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus.